Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hey everybody, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. We are back here for episode 123. With us once again is Wally Waxbanks. It's great that we were able to get to get twice, two weeks apart, for this conversation. Wally is the official authority on Fall 97 because he wrote a book on it called A Tiny yeah. Space to Move and Breathe, which is awesome. Um, but he, Wally suggested, I think, this twist um, from mm-hmm. November 14th, but you could you could pick a number of them, and I mean, it's it's impossible to overstate the importance of this tour. I don't know, Brad. Right. What, you know, I think I mentioned it last episode. It's a little it's a little weird that we haven't fallen on like some pretty staple, uh, established Fall '97 jams: twelve six, twelve seven, 
11, 12, you know, like all those, you know, all those really great shows that we go back to a lot, or at least I go back to a lot. Um, and this is kind of the beginning of it. It's even before 11, 17, 97, uh, which is an epic first set um, that, that I, I, you know, I can't get enough of even to this day. So I think it's a great choice by Wally to um, take us to kind of the beginning of, of what is really kind of December 97, I guess, that we all love. Um, except for the the eleven seventeen show, uh, this is again or not again, but it's a four song second set, Piper into Twist, which is kind of you know something that just um, like reminds me of sitting in front of a fire, like on a on a bear rug, <laughs> you know, Piper into Twist, man, like it's like so <laughs> warm and wonderful, yeah, just I love it, um, and uh, what what is this fifteen minutes of just greatness um so wally why why is this to you of fall 97 um the point the the point you wanted to point out the um uh i would say that the stash jam from vegas the night before offers a glimpse of a color or texture or mood that i don't think they had had been able to produce and stay with previously that i think they had to get small and they had to really dig into the 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 minimalism that the end of 1996 was making available to them and that they've been exploring all throughout the, the first half of 97 um and they get to the e-center and it's that is the prevailing mood um and instead of it just being a color that was used for effect Instead of like having one, we're going to play some frantic music and we're going to play some stately music and we're going to play some martial music. Then we're going to have this odd sort of ambient passage in the middle of a stash of all places. Stash is a very busy, uh, 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 bothered song. It's an agitated song. Um, And uh, instead, they're just going to, they're going to be languid and sparse and austere and haunted. And that is a that's a, a that kind of spooky mood. This is the first time when it becomes uh, a destination instead of a, a, a you know a passage to a big pop at the end or something. And to me, it's just so it's so peaceful. I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, actually. Uh, it's so it's so peaceful and so uh, timeless. That feeling of timelessness. Um, that uh, certain kinds of chemical vacations can also produce of being of being outside of the, the flow of time and to be in a pool of, of time with other people floating in it.
there's two things that I think maybe lend to your point for me. Number one is the wah pedal um, and the kind of, you know, the muted strings and just, the you know, like that, that Trey is, was so adept at by the end of, of fall 97. And then the second thing um, is, I, I don't even know what it is actually, because my, my ear is so elementary. It's, it's, it is the tone. It's also the riff. It's also the whatever he does that he does so frequently in fall 97 uh, that you hear it immediately in this, this 11, 14, 97 twist. And it's there. It takes you there. Um, and it kind of reminds me of early 94 tapes. RJ and I would always hear kind of a recurrent theme uh, from Trey. And then the middle of 95, he'd have the same thing. And then here we are again in 97, where he kind of does the, the same thing over and over again. And it's not not in a bad way. It's just this is where he is, and this is where he's comfortable. And this is kind of where he he lands, maybe, or where he starts. I don't know. One or the other. Or both. It's There's a ritual character to a lot of... I mean, I go on about this tour all day, but there's a ritual character to a lot of the shows, in, especially the first half of Ball 97, um, where the... I, I don't think of funk as as a style as being very interesting uh, for them. They're not the best at it by any stretch. Um, it's not it's not exactly where they live, and they learn so much from pl- like playing along with meters, records, and everything. Um, but f- what funk opens up to them as far as uh, the density that you can get playing minimalist music, you know, they, that's the Talking Heads all over. Like half the band it's, at times, it seems they can barely play their instruments, but they're like they generate this dense tangle of 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 music um and fish fish found a way to by playing less and less by trace stepping back being humble um and the and those are all things that that are sort of built into funk that aren't uh that aren't you don't necessarily need the style of funk to learn those lessons funk instead becomes a set of of, of organizational principles principles of association between band members and between the band and the audience and uh, I think of the space jams of fall 97 as a sort of spiraling out of that. Like they have to be in that state of, of sort of hushed empathy and connectedness. And then the space jams are like Trey stepping up to the front. And it's like, he's saying it's like a canter at a service in a way. Like it's not, it's not about ego declaration. It's about him putting a, putting a button on the on the experience of quiet on the experience of mystery that everybody's having um yeah I, i've i've gone on about this shows for years nobody wants any more of this shit from me 98 and the the first part of 99 it's not that there wasn't good music playing uh played but it, it for lack of a better term was sort of more of the same they were coasting along the same arc um but then night fall of 99 is probably where you see the first real shift the significant shift in sound as they got to that spacey groove uh, that they they kept approaching, which was a little bit different than what they had been doing for the last eighteen months or so. Um, I think, if anything, you could argue that maybe we should have gone with something that was a little bit earlier. Um, but it's hard to argue with something from Big Cypress being also a kind of you know significant turning point of the of of what happened. I mean. It affects the jam, the band's trajectory from that point forward. Um, you know, it's ultimately what causes the hiatus, uh, the the first hiatus, and some you know, kind of the first domino that fell uh, in terms of a, 
a shift in the band's frequency of play that happened over the, the next few years. Um, oh, we're, t- we're playing a song called Drugs? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, this, you know, from Big Cypress, though, um, the, the moment that we picked here uh, kind of is the encapsulation. I made reference to this before, which is the 2001. This is when um, the, the end of the Midnight to Sunrise set, when it's almost not that this jam is noteworthy for musically what it did and how it changed the band or signified change. It, I think it's more just the moment that when they stepped off the stage after playing this jam, um, things were f- going to be fundamentally different forever for the band. I mean, there was it was definitely the end of an era when they uh, when they walked off stage after Big
Like I, 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 I've come to think of 2.0, so to speak, as them still casting about for an answer to the question that Big Cypress poses. Um, and and I feel like it took them ten years to find the answer. Like they had to, they had to, they had to really start over and 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 try to recon and reconceive themselves. Like they had to, they had to break up because there was no. There was no continuation of the principles that they were following in, at the end of 1.0 that was going to give them the like spirit of discovery and and freedom and 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 joy that they used to enjoy. Like I I, I don't listen to I, I think maybe infamously I listen to Big Cypress very often. I find parts of it un, a little unsatisfying to me musically. Um, but there's no question that when they are deep in it, those hours in the wee hours of the night. Those hours of music are there's no pretense there's no none of the uh, none there's no expectation like they're in a place that only they could have made at a time of night that is impossible to imagine like that's the same way um and they're they're obeying an impulse that they had had since the mid eighties like to play the long gig and they're doing a kind of small version of it and it's a very very private joke that they're doing for tens of thousands of people at like the, at this moment of cosmic blah, 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 cosmic transformation or whatever. And, um, and it's clear that like the same way that new year's 95 represents the, the, the consolidation of everything that they had been in the nineties um, in the, in the first half of the nineties and in the first, you know, 12 years as a band, big Cypress was like everything that they had dreamt of being as a band they were being. And stylistically, I don't think they, they were there at all. So let I me ask they, you this. Let me ask you this, Wally. Let's let's look at it. And I'm not a detail guy. I'm kind of like the you know, the ten thousand foot guy. <laughs> Think about eighty three. You're way more high level. You're more of a high level guy. <laughs> you know, if we if we take a look at it from the two twenty thousand foot level, which is what I like to say in meetings, um, it, from eighty three to you know twelve thirty one ninety nine, like is this is this a is this uh, a cohesive arc to you? Is it is it did did there? Uh, there's dips and there's and, and there's valleys and there's peaks and stuff like that. But so you're saying like at the end of this, this is kind of they kind of had to take a break. I mean that, that I, I get that from what you just said. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the so Trey talks about he came off stage and he was crying and he looked over at Fish and Fish was crying and he said and he said they both realized we could stop now, like we've done we've done everything we set out to do. There's nothing. There's no idea that's bigger than this one. Um, you know, they could have played at the Great Pyramids or whatever, um, but there, but there was no, like some other band once did, I think. But you know, they there was no, there was nowhere to go on a line anymore. They were going to have to get on a different, a, a different curve, like, um, and so you know, I think of the bands, I think of the band's evolution as as an, uh, they're oscillating. But the the trend line is just getting bigger and bigger and more and more masterful and more and more closer to something that Big Cypress was the embodiment of. It's like they're entirely, it's all private. There's nobody else was playing down there. You know, uh, it was it was the, it was the kind of event that only Fish could have done. It's the most Fish event they ever did, and it was the most in, inward turning in a way. Much more so than the Great Went or or Lemon Wheeler or Clifford Ball, it was very like it's just them in a swamp. Yeah, yeah. 
So Matt, what do you think about this? Like you're, you know, the 95. Um, so to me, I see it as 91, 92, you know, all the way up to 95. It was them mastering the craft, practicing as much as they could. Trey playing as many notes as he could. Um, and then you get away from that in 97. So how do you see that arc from, you know, the early 90s to this this last 99 show? Yeah, I mean, I think that you you hit the nail on the head in terms of the early part of the 90s being this growth period. We've talked about them trying a lot of different things, learning how to be ambitious and jam on stage. In the second half of the decade, they sort of lay back and they say, okay, we don't have to be so aggro about it. We can just sort of let the music happen. We know that we're able to create it, so let's just go out and experience it and let it be, be a little bit more natural. And Big Cypress was maybe the culmination of all of that, where they said, let's be so absolutely comfortable. Um, you know, while I mentioned on the last episode, um, the band, you know, the practice rituals and the band just, you know, playing forever and having the true moment be like when the four of them are just alone creating something uh, and experiencing that that creation between the four of them. Big Cypress was maybe the best example of them really letting the audience in on that and just saying, we're going to stay up all night and we're going to play and we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to do these long things. And, um, you know, Fish even made the joke about it. You know, I mean, talking about, you know, whatever he said, you know, are we at a concert in front of 90,000 people at 530 in the morning or whatever it was at that point? Um, to have, I mean, what other band has done something like that? It's a completely unique experience to just go out there and not even just say, Hey, we're going to play like, you know, for an hour and just improv and see what happens. And that's risky enough as it is, but to say, we're just going to do this for, we don't even know how long it's going to be. We're going to use the, the nature. We're going to use the sun as a guide. When it comes up, we're done. Um, that's, that's pretty ballsy. I'm, I mentioned with the with the 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 twist, the E Center twist, that feeling of timelessness, and that feeling of being outside of regular time, and in a ritual, in in the invocation of a ritual, in the moment of a theatrical performance, um, in in any kind of magical process, as goofy as you know, as goofy as that concept is, in a magical process, the point is to suspend your the your experience of like linear time. And of and of grounded sort of mundane experience, and to get into a new kind of time and a new conception of space, they did that. They went to a fucking swamp and they made a city in it, and they went to a time between millennia, right? Between years is is enough of a they're in that liminal space. But then this is that times the thousand, right? Um, and they, man, it's just. They they really did. It's funny. You earlier two weeks ago, I remember this very clearly. You mentioned in our previous episode that uh, um, the UIC ninety four divided sky is the moment that Trey mentions on the Charlie Rose interview as he was asked what are the the peak moments, and he mentions that. But he also mentions um, <clears throat> any any time we it was the four of us in a practice room. That's his other peak moment. Um, it's a, it's this, and he says, I know it sounds like a cop out, but anytime it's just the four of us, that's when we're most at our, and so the, and the UIC divided sky, like what he says, he felt something in the room and he started doing, he starts playing, playing a solo, going through every part of improv, except for actually playing the notes. And he said, the crowd erupted. They couldn't, there's nothing for them to hear, but they felt it. And so big Cypress is the four of them playing alone 
in a swamp in the most isolated, like one of the most isolated parts of the country, it just happens that there are 70,000 people are there feeding into them and feeding off of them. But it's a totally private experience in a, an environment that they've made that is intimate and public and private and celebratory and uh, elegy and everything all at once. There's, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing left that that moment doesn't contain. Um, and that's, yeah, they just, uh, and so I figure they, they kind of had to, they had to stop after that. And cause there's nothing new in 2003 and 2004 in their music, particularly. So to, 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 to look at the list, um, I think the next one thing that we define as a turning point at the beginning of 2.0, we, we talked about this Nassau tweezer. This is another one that it's not necessarily that the jam signifies a, a change in musical direction or anything like that, because they sort of after um, Big Cypress in, in the late 90s, they sort of continued along the same sort of rock and roll slash jazz trajectory, keeping a relatively consistent jam. There's these micro things that that pop up like the Plinkos and uh, things, things like that. But um, this tweezer, I think we we called out for being probably the point in 2.0 when sort of air quotes their back, right? Um, you know, it was the big, first big significant jam that people kind of got excited about fish because you know, the, there was a lot of excitement about the band when they came back, but that the, the New Year's run and the, the first couple weeks of that winter tour were fine, but I think there was a feeling of like, you know, are they the same band? They had this time off, are they rusty or whatever? And this is a, a really, really fantastic classic tweezer um, up with some of the greats that you could say was a sign that like, no, we've, we've still got it. Uh, we needed to warm up a little bit. So I think, I think we got to give an honorable mention to Jin from two twenty two, which is three. Yeah. Um, yeah, this late, this late February Oh three run is, um, pretty solid.
and, and then to talk about it in 2004, as you said, I you know I actually am looking at the list now and I'm saying we we did talk about having a, uh, one of those Vegas shows on there. I think that was the one that make, made the recommendation around that. Um, because as painful as it is, that was a turning point. Those shows really resulted in the breakup. Um, you had the sloppy play, the feedback that they saw from the Jesse Jarnow uh, piece that really kind of stirred the pot. Um, and that's uh, that was a you know d- direct causation of the breakups. That's a significant turning point there. I think the the problem that we had with that was, I mean, what clip do you pick or what what jam do you talk about? It was just sort of a disappointing. Uh, period um, that unfortunately was probably the probably the band's rock bottom here. So let me let me ask you a brief kind of sidebar uh, question. Um, do you think that the Vegas shows or Coventry was worse? Oh, I don't think I've ever been able to. I've never been able to listen to either in their entirety, and they're all. It's all the the Coventry so overwritten with emotional uh, uh, sort of meta text. That, that it's hard to it's hard, impossible for me to evaluate its music. So I remember Charlie used to recommend Charlie Dirksen, uh, Esquire. He used to recommend who I finally got to have a couple of years, maybe years ago. I like had lunch with here in Boston. He lives in the area now, and it just felt like it was it was nice. Uh, finally, he was a human being instead of just an avatar of hateful, <laughs> jaded nonsense. <laughs> like it turns out, he's just this kind of sweet tall awkward guy he's like me but sweet and tall <laughs> shout out to shout out to charlie dirksen where i think we're going to find out whether or not he listens to the show yeah uh, when this comes out <laughs> he's a he's just a swell guy and it was it was it was so nice to it was to stitch together in another way a part of a, a community that i that had been so dear to me for t- 20 years um but he uh he used to go on about the what was it the split open and melt or the bag from Coventry and uh, they're yeah. they're like, I, I want to be, able, I want to be able to listen to it as music, but I can't like every time I visit it, it's, it's like, it's like the millionth episode of a TV show. And it's all, it's all binding together. All the previous episodes. It's like an element of a serial narrative to me. And I can't hear it as a, as a standalone episode. So, so like the waiting in the velvet sea that they played at Coventry, I realized at some point was, is actually kind of great. Like there's something about it. That's kind of great. There's a rawness to it. Yeah. But it's, it's, it, but that's inseparable from the calamitous speech that they give. Right. And so, and that's that split. I think if Trey hadn't introduced the split as it's not, so the crowd starts to go a little nuts when Trey says we need to blow off a little steam. We need to blow off some fucking steam. And the crowd goes nuts. And so I don't know how many people actually heard what he said after that. What he said, because it's the scariest thing I'd ever heard him say. He said, because I keep looking at the clock and he can't finish the sentence. He's, he's starting to, he's crying again. Um, and and it's, it's, like, it's like somebody, it's like it's being by somebody's deathbed. That to me is the most harrowing moment of the entire thing. And I just have, I have no interest in hearing Coventry as music. It's they, they see it coming, the impending death that they've brought upon themselves. Right. And it's, it's, it's just terrible, especially when he's repeating himself like yeah. night after night or whatever. Like it's just not, not enjoyable. And I think it's legit. I think it's legitimate to experience it in those purely emotional terms and not be able to, like, I don't, I don't think it was a critical failing or an analytical failing. I, I don't think it's like, I'm not discounting their emotion. I'm like discounting, like there, there's some like little gems in there, some minutes of good music. 
but sure. general generally you can't like go back there and say um it's enjoyable yeah and no i guess the point i'm trying to make is i don't think anybody should feel obligated to like take off their emotionally connected to the band hat and put on their critic hat when it comes to that like it's it's okay you know ne- you never have to be you don't ever have to have equanimity and objectivity about like your your ex-husband's new wife like it's you don't ever have to like her it's okay you're not obligated to you're allowed to hate her that's your lot in life like you 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 earned it and i'm allowed to feel and i'm allowed to feel totally fucked up when it comes to coming i think we've dwelled in the negativity too much let's get to brighter pastures in 3.0 yeah yes Impending yes. death. i would call this like the the rebirth this next rebirth. year yes right so tell us about the rebirth this is 11 album called <laughs> jazzing around jazzing around <laughs> This is the closing track. Um, that album show? Yeah, 09 is the second night of two nights, right? Yeah. It, uh, and it's the, the opener fall. of the second set. Uh-huh. It was the, it was the only fall 09 show I went to. So tell me. I mean, this is like, <laughs> for me, seven minutes in Yeah. was, okay, yeah. here we are. And then, and then there's even this little segment of Paige trying to play the ghost intro. And, and and everybody's like, whoa, bro, like, it's not, we're not there yet. Like, let's fucking jam some more. And yeah. it's 22 plus 25 minutes of, of you know, uh, the, the opening two songs, the second set. Just amazing. Oh, jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
I'm reading Neuromancer again for the first time in many years. It's one of my favorite books uh, from uh, my teenage years. And um, and uh, it's actually the book that, coined, if memory served, coins, coins the term cyberspace and the phrase the matrix to refer to, to the internet. And it's about uh, like a, a cyberspace cowboy who's been fried by some like horrifying, you know, neurotoxin. They can't get into cyberspace anymore. And he's hired by some bad dudes to do some crimes for them. And uh, they get him, they, they fix him. They, they perform a surgery. And so he is finally able to like jack into cyberspace for the first time, but he's terrified. And so the first day that he does it, like the, his description of, uh, the description of him like returning to the environment that he used to think of as inex- like inextricable from himself uh, Gibson describes him as like saying, sort of quietly saying to himself, please, now. And, and, I, and it's not clear if he's saying it to himself or to the universe. And then he describes him as tears of release streaming down his face as he like re, he re-enters this kind of, he ha, he's able to leave the prison of himself and be now infinite. He'd just be a mind. Um, and the, the, the seventh minute of that jam in Albany, that's exactly what Everyone in the room, I think, felt it was. I remember saying, "Please, like, please, like, just let, just let it go. Let us go." And Lori and I, I remember, like, were hugging each other and jumping up and down and screaming, like, in each other's faces because we couldn't believe that they had finally stepped out of themselves. You know RJ I mean? was there, and he. I, I remember him telling me, probably on the 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 twenty ninth day of November, that like, "Holy shit, man!" You know, like, here it is. So it was so awesome. It yeah. was so great. Yeah. It was a it was it was the moment we knew that everything was gonna be okay and fish was gonna keep jamming forever. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I remember it, it it felt like a huge exhale mm-hmm. after that happened. There was so much anxiety that went away. Um and not that everything got immediately back to like ninety seven levels yeah. of playing or anything like that, but it was as you know, with the tweezer from Nassau uh, that we just talked about in, in two thousand three. It was a sign after the break that like, no, don't you worry. We haven't lost anything. Uh, it's just a matter of if and when. Um, and it, so I, I wasn't at that show, but I remember breathing a, a huge sigh of relief uh, after that happened that, you know, they, they really were the same band when they, uh, when they wanted to be. So talk about the, um, the, next, the next one that we talked or that we chose, which is from Watkins Glen, right? Um, July 3rd, 2011, the storage jam. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years later, well, almost yeah. two years later, uh, there, there's good music in between. August 2010, uh, specifically at the, at the Greek, I think are yeah. great shows. Uh, Trey's got the new guitar, the Koa special piece that, you know, Languadoc saved for him. Um, but the storage jam is a highlight. I think, I think it's a turning point. Uh, and why do you, why do you think, well, you know, Matt, why do you think that? Well, it, it was not just a, a great jam, but um, a new sound, a new set of experimentation. Um, the, the band's gear was like drastically altered that night. Um, they were playing through completely different equipment, which is kind of a, the, you know, mother of necessity um, uh, at that point, because they, um, if you think about it, all of their main gear is on the main stage at the festival at that point, they have to have some sort of like side gear or backup gear mm-hmm. ready to go for them to play an hour later on a, on a stealth set, 
which side note I think contributed to the um the drive-in jam as well. But the storage yeah. jam in particular, they were using a lot of weird equipment. Um, Trey was experimenting with delays that he hadn't experimented with before. Um, there was some instrument switching uh, that happened. Um, so, you know, they were playing. And I think Fish, I don't even think Fish had a real kit for that. I think he had like a Roland uh, synth kit or something like that that he was playing. So it was a very, very different sound. If you were there, um, were you guys all at Super Bowl? No. Did, did you experience the sound? No, uh-uh. I'm not. That was not so super would, for me. So I was the only one there. So um, they also, like in this ball square where they had it, uh, they had a quadraphonic sound system. Um, so there was a this PA stacks really far away and a diamond around you when you stood uh, in this area where all these fake buildings were. And the whole time they were panning all the instruments all around the crowd that had gathered while they were playing. Oh, um, but also it, it gives a cool effect because if you were standing really close to one set of speakers you just kind of got a ton of that and the other one, you know, elements sounded very distant. Um, but things were swirling around and stuff like that. And so it was very, it was a big departure from anything that they had done, uh, before even some of the other late night sets, it was very, very like odd sounding, not necessarily melodic at times, sometimes based purely on just rhythms of delays and synths and uh, things like that. And I think that, um, that's important because it showed a, commitment to continued um board progress you know from the band at this you know kind of late era in their career so many bands become legacy bands and they just coast along on doing the same thing and they said no you know we're going to put a stake in the ground we're still going to do new crazy experimental things you can expect that uh from us moving forward so i think that's why this uh this jam definitely makes the list maybe the maybe a lot of credit goes to mike i don't know he seems to be the one thinking outside of the box. I mean, obviously Trey's the driving force behind everybody, but um, Mike's always got a little different take on stuff and maybe sound. I don't, uh, who knows? I don't know.
Matt, do you remember were they were they out of sight for that jam? Yeah, so they were in what it was was like they had set up this fake it almost looked like a, a Wild West area where there was just like a bunch of fake buildings and one of them was a storage unit uh-huh. and they they opened up part of it if my memory is serving correctly but it still had this very like opaque um kind of glass over it so the the most you could see at any point um was like their shadows uh kind of bouncing up because there was lights inside that were illuminating them from inside uh-huh. so like you'd, you'd see, sh- you know, Trey's shadow kind of like pass across the building. It was very, very psychedelic. So uh, like, interesting. Cause I, like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the big sort of transitional moments in, in 3.0. And I think about the ball square jam and the drive-in jam. If memory serves is all, they're similarly like obscured. And then there's the, there's the thrilling chilling set when they're in costume, right? They're in face paint and they're playing like in a stage set um, and they can sort of turn inward. And then there's the set. Uh, I'm trying to think the, the new year's 2013 set, like, and so, so in like, there are times when I, I think it, it does them a lot of good to efface themselves. Like I think of the blob as exactly that kind of experiment uh, and surrender to the air again, announcing its intention as, as being that kind of thing uh, as, they're they're not they don't seek out the spotlight they don't have that instinct um i think they don't have that instinct in the crass way that like you can hear on hoist how uncomfortable they are making an la kind of album like hoist is kind of shitty because it sounds like they're trying i think the way i've described it in the past is they're trying to please the wrong people um (laughs) but the so the reason the reason i bring these examples up is that like i i think uh they need Sometimes in order to really push forward, it seems like they need to erase themselves and they need to make uh, like they need to make themselves small uh, or invisible even. Um, or look um, at each other. But the the thing chilling, exactly. they're, they're, they're all facing each other. And I think that little square that they made and I, we probably talked about it. It's, it's just it seems to create something. Yeah. So this they did that with the tower. Exa- jam as yeah. Well. Um, where you couldn't, you couldn't see them at all. It was a complete, the visual representation was of the tower on, itself. They all stood on each other's shoulders and they were like 12. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, guys, we're going on, we're moving on. We, we know that the jams behind opaque glass are amazing. We are on number 13 of our, what we identified as a 15. Oh, sort of, shit. Yeah. Yes. points. <laughs> this, this is it though. This is it for me. This is, this it. is it for Brad. Yeah. This is it for Brad. Go ahead, Brad. Okay, Do it. I don't want to steal your yeah. thunder, bro. No, this is the fuck your face show, not set, because you know they 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 take it into the next the second set. But <laughs> um true. this undermine from 831 2012 from Dix. I mean, this is I I was um we were new to our house that I currently live in. Um I had uh just my oh, phone. Oh boy, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Personal history. Personal history. Just my phone. And I hit the live fish. I didn't I didn't stream it or whatever. And then I was listening to it and I'm like, oh, this is cute. Like whatever. This whole fuck you first set. And the undermine came on and it it take it took me away, man. Like this is I don't know what it is. I I, I listen to it a lot. We listen to it just in the house. Um it's it's Mike's Mike's bass, which kind of dominates for a long time. Fish's cowbell. 
the whole thing, man. It's I think it legitimately just, changed everything. It's just it's just incredible. I love everything about it. Everything about it.
So what was important about this though? To me, this was a new, yeah. this was a new, like, this was where 3.0 really like became original and new. It was in, like new soundscapes. I don't know. I hadn't heard um, jamming like this before. Um, and the fact that it was so, it was, it was on one hand, like it was, you know, type two, whatever, and undermined is, is, was an interesting song for that to happen with that whole first set. I mean, you could, you could pick anything from that first set and they were all like that. The Karini, the Kill Devil Falls, the, mm-hmm. I mean, even the Uncle Pen, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just cool. It was all good. But I think the undermine, like the, the, um, rhythm and the groove that comes out of it is, Something unlike I've anything I've ever heard before from Fish. So I think one of the the differences too is there's so much of the the build, you know, the peak, and then the bliss or whatever, like you know, however it comes. This is this doesn't have it. It's just kind of a 15 minute jam of um, rhythm, right? Like kind of the 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 cowbell and Mike and Fish, uh, the dominate, and then you know, there's not there's builds in it obviously but it's 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 different than even what we hear today it's rhythm groove but then it's but it's also like majestic and beautiful at the same time it's a really it's a it's a wonderful piece of music if you chart backwards from where we are now and most people acknowledge in the last few years um there have been really really elevated levels of playing over the the first part of 3.0 it starts with that that dicks run and really in particular this show um where suddenly with every show you saw a uh, an advancement in the band sound and jamming to the level that you had not seen um for quite some time before that um so i think that's that to me is why this is uh definitely a turning point literally if you if you were to chart it out yeah i think the the undermined also reminds me a lot of the camden chalk dust from 99 i mean it's I, I don't know if it's just the kind of where Trey's guitar ends up um, or whatever, which we didn't include the, the Chuck Dust from Camden. So congratulations to us because I, I like to talk about that a lot. But I don't know. There's something that's like very, and it, like Providence Bowie falls in the same category for me, which feels, which is like very organic majesty. Those are the, that's the category. And those three things fall <laughs> into that category. Um, nice. Wally, Wally what's Trademark. your... <laughs> what's your what's your take um i think i suspect that they are really at ease perversely at ease when they set themselves kind of ridiculous challenge um the you know the clifford ball is an example of that uh i think of big cypress is sort of the classic example of that but like playing the white album is also an example of that um and jesus well yeah the i mean the baker's dozen ends up being the biggest ch- such challenge and this is a preview of the baker's dozen um of the of the jam filled night um because they basically they say we have no ch- if we're going to do this gag we have no choice but to really explore in improvisation meaning that we have to we have to count on our jamming like to carry us um, in a way that they kind of implicitly do from night to night, but now it was the menu for tonight is we are going to play engaging improvisations in only twelve songs, and it's going to get us through three hours of music. Like that's that is an absurd 
that's an absurd thing for a bunch of 50 year olds to demand of themselves. You know, when they, when they, when they present themselves with something to do uh, a task, are they better? Right? Well, yeah, the fuck your face set shows that the Baker's dozen shows that like, I think it's, 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 it's an easy answer, I think. Well, let's so, also, sorry, go ahead. Why? No, 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 it's all right. I want to just say that the next, the, the last two actually, not to jump ahead, but Tahoe Tweezer also was that, I think, based on the, the lore of, um, you know, this, the story about our friend Kevin who talked to Fishman at a bar and he was talking about Mud Island, which we talked about last episode, and how that was the last long tweezer, et cetera. And then the next night they played the Tahoe Tweezer. So that seemed to have been some sort of setup as well. Not as public as the others, but but that seems to be the theme now. So it seems like they always need a gag from now on to play to, to play turning points. So we should tell them. We should email them right now and tell them. <laughs> You've discounted it now. You call it a gag. <laughs> well, I, I mean a, a challenge. Sorry, challenge, challenge, challenge. I think I think they need I, I think they need some grit to it so you know it's it's interesting that it, it, it's not a, at all a coincidence that their big improvisatory vehicles for the longest time were songs like you enjoy myself and reba and david bowie and these are songs where they spend several minutes in the case of yem it's like 10 minutes syncing up playing really hard music and the music is so hard that it erases their it, you, you can't it's got to just be in your fingers like you can't be you can't be in your ego, you can't be actively thinking through what you're going to play. It, it's got you just have to have it down cold, and it's a test. It's like taking a math test at high speed in front of ten thousand people who paid money to see you take it and demand that you ace it, and expect you because they've heard the tapes of a hundred other math tests you took. They expect you to ace it, and they're going to be a little irritated if you. Um, and then at the end of that, they get to float. That's it. Uh, I mean, I, I I go on about it's algebraic like their music their compositions trace compositions are very schematic and algebraic at times especially early in his career um and they do that in order that everybody there is synced up it's like listening to those brainwave syncing tapes at night the point is to get your you once you're all in a pure oh people okay but like it, it once everybody's brain is a pure a pure sinusoid i've never done um like that's the state they want everybody to be in so that they can be totally receptive to the background noise of the universe right it becomes it becomes uh discernible as noise atop the 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 synchronized wave that everybody's on and so what that means is that they were at their best improv wise not starting cold in an okipas ceremony which is a lot of fucking dumb noodling most of the time but instead, it's when they set themselves the challenge of nailing this and uh, nailing these hard songs and seeding themselves with musical ideas, right? Because they're they're analytical types, and so when late in their career, so much good comes out of themselves setting. It comes out of them setting themselves a hard task, and and having to. They need an occasion to rise to, um, and and so. Yeah, and they do, and they do so well when the pressure is off. But I mean, they do they need that pressure. They need the pump prime, and that's they're creative. They're creative people, and they want they want creative challenges, um, for sure.
So here's here's something I'm realizing about the, the Tahoe Tweezer too. Besides its length and importance, um, when else has the audience influenced the course of a mm-hmm. jam? Sure. It's very obvious that when the yeah. the audience started wooing, that gave Trey an idea, and that pro- Terrible, probably yeah. fueled about the last 13 minutes or so of the jam. Um, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm struggling to think of times when that's happened where something that the audience did affected the band not just you know fueled them but like affected them in terms of like whoa we have to play because they could have wrapped up the tweezer at 20 at 23 minutes and it would have been a great tweezer and people would have been like yeah cool tahoe tweezer but the band the the audience starts the wooing uh it it fuels this idea and that leads to an entire additional long section uh there was um i think so i think it's worth there's there's really a long or not long but like there's a continued continuing baiting by the by the band after that where they're like oh here let's get them to woo right i mean it's almost like they brought it on later on and 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 fans were bitching about it but it you know the band was kind of egging the the crowd on with it so man it stuck around for years too mm-hmm. um but you're right man i think there there has there haven't been that many um instances of that and the you know as we kind of wind toward baker's dozen i mean it's in a lot of ways, what about well, the hood wanna... from uh, what was it, Red Rocks when they they first, you know, Harry Hood? Yeah, um, and the Art Jam that we yeah. talked about last time. That's I mean, point. it's interesting because I think the not to like make this too grandiose, but it seems like all the stuff we've talked about over the past two episodes, there's like elements of everything in Baker's Dozen, um, which is why this conversation originally started, but. You go back to what we were talking about last time with the the segues from the bomb factory and the kind of pure sort of improv um, of 94, 95 exploratory stuff and the fan element and the engagement that we've been talking about in this episode, like this, I don't know, the storage jam and the even the, the Tahoe tweezer. And a lot of that to me is really reflected in the Baker's Dozen because we were we as fans were were a huge part of it you know it wasn't just the the donuts and whatever it was the fact that we were all there at the same time for so many nights in a row i mean not all of us were there every night but like i think that was a big part of it right and and the challenges piece that they obviously challenged themselves to kind of you know no repeats and all that i don't know it's it's kind of a a combination of a lot of the stuff we've talked about over the past couple episodes yeah so here's what i would say because it Getting back to the beginning of this whole discussion, I believe it started with the the Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy, and and a, and a question about how important is this in the grand scheme of things. So I guess what I would ask what I would ask is defend it. You know what? Why is the Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy this great jam that was just played? Uh, that is the freshest example of anything we're talking about. Why is that so important? To, so I'll I'll start and be brief, but I, I think to me it's um it's it's more from from a fan perspective and not necessarily from a musical perspective i think this it shows that any um any song can be a vehicle for classic improv and i think we've we've gotten used to you since 2013 really of like you know what's the second set thing going to be it's going to be down with disease if i go if if, and if i don't go it'll be tweezer or something else (laughs) um but but you know, we've gotten used to this formula almost of like, 
you know, there might be a 46 days or walls of the cave at the end of the first set or an antelope if we're lucky. And then we'll have like a cool first two songs of the second set, maybe a second set closer, but they'll like fumble in the fourth quarter, whatever the analogy is. And, you know, I think this just broke the formula. I think this broke the mold for 3.0 and sure. whether it happens again or not, it doesn't really matter. This is the, it's a completely new and um, novel. It's a completely novel concept. And I think it's, it changed everyone's perspective on what's possible with fish music. That's my take anyway. thought to it, it's kind of similar RJ that um <clears throat> excuse me they were at the baker's dozen very 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 good at uh bringing the place to an eruption like every night 
right? I wasn't there for every thir- all 13, but like they, I mean, they could take any song and kind of build it and the place would go crazy and the lights and the whole thing was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't get into a rut where they just did it uh, in the second set or whatever. Uh, they could have fallen into like a, look, we're not, we're not repeating any songs, but like, you better believe the second set, we're just going to make this place explode. Um, they kind of showed us in the, uh, you know, this, this night with the lawn boy that like, look, we're still, we can still do whatever we want. Uh, even though we're very adept at doing the stuff that makes everybody go crazy. (laughs) I guess that, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to present the minority report here, and I'm going to say that for for the last turning point, I would not have selected anything from the Baker's Dozen at all. Uh, I would have selected the Fair of the Well shows um, as the most the most important thing that's happened to fish since they came back, uh, maybe um, because it's because Trey, Trey finally had Trey finally had Trey of the '90s in his hands for, for the first time since the '90s. Um, it was the feeling that I, that I had. And he, I think he was more himself finally. Um, but so, but leaving, so so then to leave that aside, I think the, the lawn boy is, um, when they played, they jammed out sample at first. I I hate the phrase jammed out. And if my wife would be embarrassed to hear me say it, uh, my son would roll his eyes and he's only seven, but, um, uh, but you know, they, they, they sort of stretched out sample and everybody sort of knew that that was going to be the that that was what was going to happen um like that they they had sort of said jam filled and we we sort of knew the conceit um and it's it's not the world's greatest jam or anything it's just hey they stretched out sample fucking finally and it felt like a punchline a little bit but they get to lawn boy and it's a two, it's a novelty song and they've stretched out novelty songs before i mean makasupa is a novelty song for god's sake and and their half their songs are arguably novelty songs they extraordinarily beautiful yeah i mean they played extraordinarily beautiful versions of fee and fee is a silly you know joke tune um but yeah, they played wipe they built wipe out into a set long improvisation right so but they're um they get to lawn boy and it just feels like uh all bets are off but it but it's not it's not only in the in the way that the the fuck your face show sort of forced them to play these long jams they really like a half hour is a goddamn long time to play this song and it's not boring for even a second they're just fully invested and at ease they're not nervous. Like the, the sample jams a little bit like, Oh, look what we're doing. They're self-conscious, a little self-conscious. They're drawing attention to it. The lawn boy jams just like, he puts on that stupid guitar because why not? And they just, they just go. And the entire jams just like, why not? And the entire show is just like, why not? And the entire run feels just, why not? We, we can do anything. There's, there's, there never again in our lives needs to be pressure on this music. Because everything that we've we've been doing it for thirty years, we can just accept like we're an institution. Um, and so, what's what's the what's an awesome thing you can do as an institution? Is is just play something as stupid as this? We're gonna play Lawn Boy forever. So I'll I'll round up by by giving the answer to my own question. I I'll suggest that the the book is not written on the Lawn Boy yet. It's all, it only happened three months ago. 
And what we've seen as we've talked about all these jams over the last uh, two episodes, it, it's not necessarily about what happened that night. It's about what happened afterwards. And time will tell if the Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy is something that is a turning point in Fish's history, or if it was just a moment where they played a great jam. Uh, and I think that we have a lot of time to go to see that, and maybe we'll look back in a year, two years, five years, and we'll be able to reassess that. Um, but right now we have sort of a hanging Chad number 15. Is, is the Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy, it, not only is this still Lawn Boy, but is Lawn Boy important? Mm. Interesting. Wow. Nice. That's a fucking curveball for you. So we don't even know. I mean, this the whole thing started with, with Lawn Boy and now Matt's telling us that we don't know yet. Well this is sort of mm-hmm. like this is sort of like the ending of like Lost or yeah. something where they're like uh, you're like waiting for some big ending and they're like, actually maybe no it never yeah, happened. We I don't know. No but also God damn it. That's <laughs> like we're gonna we're gonna tell you the answer at the end, but really we're just gonna piss you off. That's what we and just nope, did. Actually no. <laughs> don't stop believing people. <laughs> So anyway, oh yeah, we're back for one twenty three sometime. This is or, the end of the Sopranos, where you yeah, don't yeah. know if Brad shot me or not. Um, <laughs> Wally, Wally, as we wrap up, is there any um, sort of brief kind of takeaway from from you from going through these uh, two episodes and just going back and kind of thinking about this topic? Um, I think uh, there been there been moments throughout the last uh, both of these episodes when when the our trying to account for the music means trying to account for shifts in our perspective about the music. And uh, one of the things over the years that I've tried to become more sanguine about people like ranking and rating shows, because the purpose of the exercise isn't to generate a a ranking. Those are all useless Um, there. It's to, it's to generate a state of mind like that you can only get to after a long period of sort of thinking stuff through and talking it through. And so I like, I'm, I think you could probably pick 10 other shows that are in, in other ways, like big turning points for the band and for the community. And I would, I would note actually that the more and more as we got toward the end, like especially in tonight's episode, there are the moments of transition have a lot to do with the community's relationship with the band. Um, And the, the blurring of the lines between like between, between band and, and the universe that they've made. Um, and that's a sign in a way of how successful, like their, their long-term project of making a, t- you know, a tiny space for themselves to move and breathe freely amongst beloved friends. Right. That's, that's, that's always been their project from the, from the sculpture garden at Goddard to Madison square garden. Um, and so I, I take them literally and seriously when they say the life they love is, you know, making music with their friends. Like that's, they 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 borrowed the an actual good lyricist's words to get to something simple and, and almost banal sounding and perfectly true for them. Um, and so the exercise, like I think it's okay that the exercise of like thinking through all this stuff ends up. It's I, I don't think it's quite history or historiography. I think it's it just kind of in throwing a little light on dusty corners of like our relationship to then and and to one another. Like that's, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm very grateful to have had the, the chance to share this kind of, this path with you guys. Uh, and I don't, and I don't think it has to, nice. I don't think it has to have, pro, I don't think it has to have produced anything. And I'm okay with the fact that we don't know. I think it's perfect that we don't know how significant 
Lawn Boys is because its significance is the least significant thing about it. Uh, awesome. Brad, um, your follow-up album to <laughs> Jazzing Around is going to be just Dusty jazz Corners. Dusty Corners, of, Dusty Corners of Jazz. No, Jazzy. Yeah. Wally, I just want to say we when we started talking about this topic, there's no better person to, to go through this exercise with. So thank you for sharing all your wisdom. But totally. Brad, Brad, what's your wisdom? I don't have it. Dude, come on. What am I supposed to do? Follow what Wally said? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Matt? Uh, what he said. <laughs> no, this is, this is, seriously though, this has been fun. Uh, I think it's, um, it was a good topic. It was thought provoking. It actually like resulted in a lot more back and forth than the listeners probably know about in advance of the recording and everything like that. So I hope everybody, um, nobody's going to agree. I mean, so fuck that, but I mean, I hope people have thoughts about it at least. And we'll, uh, add us and contact us, email us, you know, send up smoke signals, whatever, tell us how wrong we are. And uh, let's get into it. At us, you know, at us, bros. It's this bros. Um, so Wally, thank you for joining. Wally is at Wax Banks on Twitter, and if you haven't read either and both of Wally's books, um, a live one from thirty-three yeah. and a third. Did I say that right, Brad? Wally, yeah, Wally. That's his name. <laughs> In a tiny space to move and breathe, which is about full ninety-seven. Wally, will you come back again and talk to us more about fish? Oh, I'd love to. That's this is always a genuine treat. Thank you. And Matt, Brad, thank you guys. This has been fun. We miss Jonathan. Yeah, um, I was going to say that. Nice. But but Jonathan and Brad can't be in the same internet room, so keep picking and choosing. All right, guys. Um, well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, have a good week. Keep on rocking. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. 
Together, we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!